Hello and welcome to another edition of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. One of the most beautiful food books I've seen lately was published just a couple of weeks ago. And luckily for me, the author lives right here in Rome. Hi, I'm Sagar Setare, and I'm the author and photographer of Pomegranates and Artichokes, Recipes and Memories of a Journey from Iran to Italy. Sagar tells an astonishing story, and she tells it very well indeed. When she arrived from Iran in Italy, she writes, she certainly didn't have a particular passion for food. Slowly, though, that passion developed, first for Italian food, and then, by extension, for the food of her homeland and all the countries in between. In fact, her book is divided into three sections, Iran, in between, and Italy. So, when we sat down to chat in a park near her home, I wanted to understand the importance to her of the in-between. What I mean by in-between is virtually all the geographical space that is between Iran and Italy, which is all of the you know Eastern Mediterranean and what we call the Middle East or the Levant, to be more precise, um, which share... Um, a lot of culinary similarities and which are shared on both sides of that space but in different ways and for me that was a way to be able to um, talk about the similarities between um, the Iranian and Italian cuisine because if you look at them you know uh, on their own you can't find any or I mean you could but it would be very difficult but when you follow that thread it's actually quite easy so it's it's the way that foods travel between Iran and Italy that the, the in between allows you to trace that. I think yes, and it allows me to see the similarities because there can be um, a dish that has um, something similar with it. And let, let's say let's I, I, I do make this uh, example in the in the introductions. Uh, let's talk about the aubergines, for example. We have a very, very famous dish in Iran that is from the north. It's called Mirza Ghasemi. You have it in the book. And it's made with charred aubergines. And then you add tomatoes to it. And um, then, then you add eggs and garlic to it. It's very important that it's garlicky enough. Um, and then you go... You arrive to the Levant, and one of the dishes that is very well known and everybody almost knows about it is the baba ganoush or mutabbal, and it's also made with charred aubergines, and they do also other things with charred aubergines, which are repeated in Turkey and in, uh, also in Greece. And then when you go to Turkey, they also do other things with aubergines that are perhaps not charred, but similar enough to to that uh, Iranian dish Mirza Ghasemi that I was talking about, something like Imam Bayildi, which is, you know, you, you cook the eggplants in a lot of olive oil and then you, you make the sauce with um, onions, garlic and tomatoes. And then by the time you arrive to south of Italy, you can trace the same dish back to many dishes. One of them could, um, you know, simply be Parmigiano di Melanzana. It has cheese in it, but it's basically, you know, the aubergine, again, fried with um, lots of olive oil, tomatoes, and a little bit of garlic in the sauce, and many other dishes. So that's that's how you I, I trace these dishes. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily connected to each other. And is the movement generally 
from east to west, or were there things that went back, as it were? I mean, I'm saying back, but are there things that went from west to east? I am not, like, this is very important. I am not trying to make a point by saying that this thing started in the West and then it came to the East or vice versa. This thing happened with, you know, with us first in the East and it went to the other way around. This is not my point. The point of pomegranates and artichokes is to see these similarities between recipes and ingredients, which, I mean, makes you wonder, oh my God, we are peoples, different peoples, who eat very similarly. Okay, so naturally, if we eat the same things, very similar things, we must be similar enough too. And it puts a question marks on the movement of the people. I don't want to make a, you know, point of oh, we invented this thing first. That's that's not the point. I don't even have the authorities. I honestly don't think it should be done because a lot of things happen simultaneously in different places for simply the reasons that th- those ingredients were available in very similar climates. Especially with the foods of the quote-unquote new world arrived, um, like tomatoes or potatoes or peppers, they these places, all of them, they made those ingredients their own by adding it um, to the dishes they already have, by uh, dressing it with the condiments they already have. So I don't want to trace, a, you know, it's not a linear thing. It's, you know, spots happening at the same time together. That's very refreshing to hear with everybody sort of claiming we're the authentic this, we're the authentic that. Um, About your own journey, though, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it was more or less a complete surprise that you ended up staying in Italy. A surprise for who? For you. (laughs) Um, Not that I ended up staying in Italy, but that I came to Italy, that was a surprise for me because I had never thought about Italy in my life before, um, you know, preparing myself to come to Italy. It wasn't a country I had considered. But by the time I arrived, uh, it wasn't so much I knew I wanted to stay in Italy. It was more that I knew I didn't want to go back. And I was already in Italy. And, you know, um, as much as I didn't know anything about it, Italy, I remember I fell in love with Rome like immediately. And um, I was so consumed, you know, all of us, when, when we come from that part of the world, you are so consumed with um, dealing with the bureaucracy of things, being able to stay, that at least in my head, I wasn't thinking about, oh my God, this is good, this is bad, do I want to stay, do I want to leave, do I want to go somewhere else? And by the time I had figured it out and things were more or less um, kind of normal, I was too exhausted to even think about going anywhere else. But you came as a student in 2007, and you were here when everything blew up in 2009. That must have had an impact. It did have an impact because... um, you know, in, in the recent history of Iran, in the last hundred or year or so, we've had these attempts at reaching democracy several times. Perhaps the most well-known one is um, the 1979 revolution, but there has also been, uh, there have also been, you know, other very significant episodes, such as the 1953 coup that happened against the democratic government of President Mossadegh we had in Iran. And then the, there was one... We had had something in 19, um, 
98 or 7 now, I can't remember, I'm sorry, uh, against the students and then this election fraud that happened in 2009. Uh, it was the one, the first one for which I was old enough to really understand what was going on. And we were away and all of our friends and family were there and uh, we had been pretty much involved also before the elections. And we, it, you know, it, it, it was kind of a happy moment, as weird that word can sound. Um, so yes, it had a huge impact. And um, but you know, it's been said somewhere by mistake that I realized that time I was an exile and I couldn't go back. That's not true. I I, I never thought I was an exile at that moment. There was a I did postpone a trip, but I went actually the first time I went back to Iran was in. Uh, I believe October of 2009 so it's not like I couldn't go back I could go back uh, but it was you know it was a shock it was very traumatic for us especially because we were glued to the screen and we couldn't really um, you know put out our energies into actual protests or anything but and, and it was you know, watching everything happen, it was horrific. But I would say not as horrific or perhaps maybe a little less horrific. I can't quantify that anymore. Um, of what's been happening since September 2022 with the Woman Life Movement. Uh, it has definitely been more horrific. I think they've killed more people, more tortured more people. Um, we definitely spent all we've, we had left of our mental health on that. Um, but I still think the shock of 2009 was greater on me. Yeah. But the whole business, though, it seems... I mean, I notice, for example, that you, you, you've got a comment from Olya Hercules, mm -hmm. and it seems that food has become part of activism, especially maybe for expatriates who can't really do something on the ground, but using food to to raise money and to gain support. Um, do, you, do you think, am, am, am I right that, that that is something more recent, people using food in that way? I honestly don't know because people like Olia, I mean, it's not like Olia clinged on to food because uh, the Russian occupation happened. She was, you know, she's an amazing, she's one of the best food writers of our times. Uh, she's been doing whatever she's doing for quite a few years now. And then your country is occupied. There's a war. You use whatever you've got. Uh, in my case, I was actually... I think the Iranian situation is even more complicated because I didn't want to put all of my attentions on Iran food-wise because I would say that I, I wanted to write pomegranates and artichokes to write not to, to talk not just about Iran, but a whole situation of most importantly immigration and, and the freedom of movement. And, and, I, and I always thought this is one of the reasons I came up with this idea because I thought that the food of these places can show it very well, the similarities of these people. So I wanted to use it as a, as a means to talk about this problem um, of migration policies. Then the Iran things happened and um, 
I personally, and I repeat, this is a very personal thing. I have some problems because I know what is expected of Iranian food in the Western media. You want it to be uh, exotic and rose waters and pomegranates and pistachios and do this and that and that and, the, you know, uh, 1001 night. And I didn't want to do that. And I especially didn't want to apply it to the moment of the revolution. Uh, but, you know, I had finished everything with the book before the revolution. But even now, I... Um, I am quite wary of that. I'm, I, I don't want to ever mix the two things, especially because I realize that, you know, I am doing this professionally and I have a book and, that I'm promoting at this moment and I don't want it to ever sound like that I am, you know, talking about the revolution and at the same time also promoting my book. Like, this is the last thing I want to happen. Um, but I also did, this was before the book was uh, released. It was exactly a month before book publication. Um, it wasn't my idea. It was one of my best friend's idea to do a sort of a dinner for fundraising to help some of the people in Iran who've been shot in the eye during the protest and they needed uh, operations. And uh, we did a fundraising dinner and that was, you know, traditional Iranian dinner and everything. Whereas with my own work, with the sort of, when I teach classes and, you know, this book, I've tried to stay away from, not always, I mean, I've, I've taught a lot of Iranian cooking classes, but I wanted to, like, you know, um, let's expand the thing a little bit. And I have two reasons for that. Not only just for the people on, the, on this side, especially on the Italian side and in the West in general, to see the similarities and to kind of accept that, oh, you see, no big deal. It's not. It's not that difference. We're not that exotic. We're not that ethnic. We're not that different. But I also want to bring Iran closer to its neighbor countries. In this case, in the in, in its west, because we're not talking about the other side, um, because there has been also, um, you know, a, a wall for many different. Um, social and political and geographical reasons, um, you know, and cultural also. And, I, and I, I really want to, you know, cover that gap. Let, let, let me succumb a little bit to the, the, the myth of Iranian food. Okay. Um, there's an awful lot of saffron. Yes. What is the significance of saffron within Iranian cuisine? Well, um, again, I would say there is a lot of saffron in the dishes that appear in the Western media um, because there are dishes in Iran that don't have saffron. And this, the symbol of saffron in Iranian cuisine is the same that it could be almost anywhere else, well, perhaps not in Italy. It's affluence, Okay. Because saffron is expensive. Good saffron is expensive. Um, but we're also very much used to that flavor. And we like it when we put it both in sweet and savory dishes. Um, but, you know, apart from that, I'm not sure that it has a specific meaning. It's just that, especially when you're cooking for guests, you use uh, dishes with saffron and you use more saffron than uh, normal in that. And but But it doesn't mean that, you know, Simple regional dishes, they all have saffron. They almost always don't. So saffron is something that you would, you would use more for guests than exactly. just for domestic cooking. 
Yes. You, you would, like, let's say you are using a dish that um, you would cook it also for domestic cooking, like a normal rice, okay? Um, you do add a little bit of saffron for your, you know, normal white rice. But when you have guests, you definitely add more saffron. And you might even add a dash of rose water to that saffron um, because, you know, it's for guests. Uh, so, you, you know, you pipe everything up for guests naturally like everyone else. Cool. Yes. Um, but talking about rice, and there's this impossible to achieve. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, don't I, you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, 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 I, I, I wrote it down because I knew I wouldn't remember it. Yeah, um, ta, ta, tadig. Yes. Is that? Yes, the tadig. Um, so um, it's not impossible. Okay, so the secret to well, a you good better, tahdig. I, have, I haven't said what it is. Nobody knows. I mean, if people don't know, it's that crispy stuff on yes. the bottom. Oh yes. So the, the tahdig in um, Persian it literally means the bottom of the pot. Tah means bottom, dig is the pot, okay? Um, so when you cook rice, uh, which needs quite a lot of time in, in the method, I have explained the method like as a, as a master recipe in the beginning of the book, um, you should get this crispy rice, okay? But it depends, and you know, this is the secret. The secret to getting a good tah dig is experience, okay? So don't think... You can get it right on your first attempt, okay? It's a good pot. You need a very good, heavy, um, non-stick pot. This is what you need, okay? And luck. Because even the most experienced cooks with the best pots ever sometimes get their tactics wrong, okay? And so it's... It's a combination, it's sort of a magical thing, okay? Sometimes it doesn't happen, but it's still delicious. Sometimes you burn it, but then, you know, once you get the hold of it, and, and trust me, this thing about the pot is really important. And um, something I didn't expect I learned recently is that it actually works better on induction. Because we have, uh, we, we use a sort of, um, um, oh my God, what is its name in English? The... Spargi fiamme, which is a, oh, uh, a heat diffuser. A heat diffuser, uh, and it's made of metal and it has a lot of holes. And we always put this on the gas hob, okay? Because another thing is that you need the heat to be diffused. Because if you're on a normal gas hob with the thing at only the, the heat at the center, you won't get it, okay? And that's how I I, I don't remember where I cooked it recently on um, on induction, and it turned out wow, um, and. You need a lot of oil. Like that, that the good parts need to be well greased, okay? Uh, and that's how you get to flip it, okay? And then also the time. You, you start always on a high flame for like 10 minutes or so, and then you reduce it and you give it time. But trust me, like if you, if you get these things, good pot, heat diffuser or induction, good pot, oil. Uh, I said the good part, but you know, you should say it few, more times because it's very important. Like eat the best Iranian cook in the world in the wrong pot won't be able to get a good tactic. I mean, it sticks. Then you need to scrap it with a wooden spoon or something, which is still very nice, but it, you can't flip it. I was intrigued um, a couple of weeks ago. You had a, a, a pasta recipe. Oh, yes. Um, with potato on the bottom yes. to make a potato tadi. Yes. Is that 
Did you invent that? Is no. That tra- no, 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 no. You can make different tahdiks. Um, I mean, of course, there's the rice one, especially in these years since, you know, Samin Nusrat did her tahdik. It's the rice one that is the you know most famous one because it's the easiest one, because you just put the rice there and it, this thing happens. Uh, but there are different types of tahdik. You can make tahdik with almost anything because the function of tahdik, um, more than anything, is to protect the rice, okay? So you would put something at the bottom of the pot, and again, remember good pot oil, a lot of oil. And, um, it can be with flatbreads, and you, you usually add a little bit of saffron. So imagine a little bit of pita or lavash. That comes out, wow. Wow, it comes out very good. And then there's the potatoes. And personally, I am in love with potato tactics. I would have killed as a child for potato tactics, and they would give me all of the tactic, and I would... You know, people fight over tactic because... Because imagine you have a big pot and there's a lot of rice in it, but the surface of the pot always remains the same. So there's always a little tactic. It's a little bit of delicatessen for, for, you know, for everyone. And the sort of dishes like that macaroni dish, which is um, it's the Iranian sort of a spaghetti dish. And um, or, for example, there's another dish in the book. It's called Lubiopolo. It's this uh, rice, sort of a pilaf with um, green beans. It has a tomato sauce. It's very good. So these things, that ha- they're mixed things that you get the juices that in this long process of cooking, they go down. When you have something like the flatbread or potatoes, they absorb those um, juices and they become divine. Um, but no, that, that's definitely something that exists I did not invent. What one day I will I will have the courage to try that. But so far, I have the good pot. I have the oil. I don't have the courage. Um, let you me ask. Have a good pot. Oh, I have a good pot. Then you're set. You try. You, you know, you, you try, and then I, I think you're gonna get it because. Um, and then if you don't, you'll try next one. And, and, you know, you will get, unless you burn it completely, which I don't think can happen because you're going to be there and you can smell it, you will get some part of it because it, maybe it became, becomes a little bit mushy and not crisp enough. And it happens to me also a lot of times. It's not like I can, I, I told you, there is a factor of luck. Sometimes you just don't get it right. Um, but, like, if you have the good pot, but without the good pot, no, you won't. Tell me about rice as a sweet dish in your in your book because you've got sort of rice cakes rice puddings um of course the english have a rice pudding everybody has a rice pudding and that's also one of the reasons that rice there are many rice puddings in the book um because and this is one of those recipes i mean one of those cases not the recipes because there are you know different recipes where you can actually historically trace back um where you know why we all have rice puddings and it it's the most fascinating history uh i it it was impossible to write about all of it in this book there was just too much information but um, so at a certain point i realized that we have white puddings and and you know rice puddings um in all of these regions and even beyond um, and I wanted to add some, one form or another of these to to each chapter. And when I started reading into rice puddings, I came upon you know possibly anyone who has ever read um, some historical sources about uh, medieval cooking has 
come upon this. So it's not like I, I dig this out of the history. Um, there are two very important dishes, both um, in the medieval, let's say, Arabic part uh, or Arab Persianate part and uh, in the European part. The um, Arab Persianate dish is called Svitbaj. It's very difficult. It's a very difficult name. And it's basically, it literally means white stew. Um, and then the European one is, of course, the blancmange. Um, so what I found out is that, uh, well, it says that the sweet is, a, is an Arabized name of a Persian dish, and I could not possibly understand, like, what dish is this? And then I searched for it, and I found it, and I found that it's Persian is actually called sepid ba, which, and, and ba is a very ancient word for stew again. So basically, the, these white stews, and you know, this was a very, very old Persian recipe apparently that was then, um, they used to make it in, in the Abbasid court and that's where we have the first manuscript of the uh, Arab cooking because we don't have, any, nothing is left of the ancient Persian recipes uh, as in written recipes. Um, they would, it was a stew made with white ingredients and so the white ingredients could be almost anything but there was almost always rice or rice flour in it there were almonds there were chickpeas there was sugar there was meat because when you cook it it becomes white um, and um, you know and there are many, 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 many different versions of it. And so was the blancmange. You know, the blancmange had a lot of almonds, um, meat, sometimes rice flour, sometimes. But you know, rice gets to to, to Europe later on. And these dishes are very, very similar. And there are many different varieties for them. And the meat was usually used as a thickener. Uh, um, and there was meat in them and there was also sugar in them. So they were meaty dishes, like they were, they were stews that were also sugary. Um, apparently we can't tell which of these dishes inspired the other ones. Like there, there is not enough evidence to say that. Um, but you know, it's completely fascinating that they exist. And then something happens during the years and um, these dishes, they start, you know, losing one or other ingredients and they become other specific dishes. In particular, they lose the meat and they become the white puddings or the rice puddings that we know today with the aromatics. And, um, but you know, we still have a lot of evidence of them that they have stayed. For example, um, in Iran, we still have um, a sort of a, 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 a porridge that is made with grain and meat and you serve it with um, sugar, butter and cinnamon for breakfast. Or in Turkey, we have uh, this pudding. It's a dessert that it's, you know, it's, you know, with rice flour and everything. It's made with chicken breast and it's sweet. You still have it. You can find it. A lot of tourists freak out when they realize that, but it's like, delicious. And, uh, but, you know, in, in Europe, it loses the meat and it's, it's um, then... Um, substitute with gelatin and it becomes all the you know the jellos even the panna cotta because the panna cotta is the same thing with you know, white desserts like they're all related in this way but they also can all be identified with a particular country region area people by the condiments by the exactly. aromatic so in Iran we use um, we use rose water 
and cardamom. And the rose water in Iran, the flavor is a little bit different from other places. I think it just simply depends on the roses. So all rose waters are different, the kind of like, let's say wine, I don't know. Um, and then when it gets to the Levant, it doesn't have the cardamom, it has the rose water, but we have the addition of orange blossom, all the citrus. And then we have, we lose the rose water by the time we arrive to Italy. We have the orange blossom in Campania, for example, even the pastiera or other things. And they add, you know, all the citrusy things, lemons, but also sometimes vanilla. So it's fascinating. One of the things I find very interesting about your book and history of producing it, there's, there's this circle of, I think they're all women, here in Italy writing books, quite personal, quite memoir, and you're all very supportive of each other, which is great. I mean, but has that been important to you? The support of um, the women of the food writing community has been everything to me. I don't think I would have been able to do that without them because, um, you know, it's one thing to be interested in food and these things and... Um, you can't do a book or, you know, get into the publishing business, which is very difficult, just by that. Uh, and I've been, you know, quite blessed with these friendships since the early days that I started working with food, be it, you know, photography, workshops, different collaborations and things. Um, and yes, they've, they've been fundamental in Italy and some of them even outside Italy. But, uh, you know, I was just thinking about it, that we're in Italy, we're very, very fortunate because we have a lot of um, amazing people from different places, especially mostly women. Um, I don't know why it's mostly women, to be honest, um, that they're all very supportive of each other. Do you consider yourself an Italian cook? No. Do you cook Italian food? I do cook a, a, an Italian food. There are, you know, a lot of my recipes in the book, in the Italian chapter. Um, I don't consider myself an Italian cook because... But, you know, I don't consider myself a, an Iranian cook either. Um, I do consider myself a cook, and I... I'd like to say that I am a sort of cook that I don't want to be bound by the nationality. I, I can't, I just can't put that in front of myself. But I'm definitely more um, at home with, uh, let's say, um, Middle Eastern, Iranian, Mediterranean and Italian food. That's it. But I'd like to be able to, to explore. I just, I, I want to say I'm a cook. And before being a cook, I'm a photographer and a writer because I think I'm, I'm those things before being a cook. And um, then those things I write about, I can also cook. Sagar Sitare. And take it from me, the recipes and photographs in pomegranates and artichokes are bound to inspire you as they have me, both to curl up with a book and to get stuck in, in the kitchen. I'll put some links about how to find Sagar in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. Or you can just search online for Lab Noon. Why Lab Noon? Well, seek and you shall find. And that's all from me for a little while. I'm taking a short break from podcasting for the start of the summer, 
although I am going to try and maintain the flow of the newsletters. If you want to make sure that you don't miss the return of Eat This Podcast, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you haven't already, sign up for the newsletter from the website at eatthispodcast.com. It'll always be completely free forever. I hope you've enjoyed all the episodes in this past season. And if you have, please consider leaving a rating and review. It all helps new listeners to find the show. Thanks again to all the lovely supporters who keep the lights on. I really appreciate your generosity. And that's it for now. From me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.